WW. <laughs> I mean, who you figure that is, huh? Woodrow Wilson? Willy Wonka? Walter White? You got me. Bad Universe, including the original show, spinoff, and Netflix movie. On each episode, we will discuss one season or film where appropriate of this universe. Tonight, we will discuss part one of season five of Breaking Bad. My name is Jerome Cusan. I'm one of the co-hosts. You can follow me on Twitter at JeromeC1985. I have seen up to episode eight of season five of Breaking Bad as we speak. Uh, we are part of the Real World Podcasting Network, a network that also includes Superhero Pantheon, There Will Be Movies, Flooping the Pig, and In the Archives from Broadcast Depth. Please leave a five-star review on your favorite podcasting platforms, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, so as to help people discover the great work we are doing here. My co-host is Kevin Ford. He has seen everything in the Breaking Bad universe except El Camino, and you can follow him on Twitter at KFord13. Kevin, tonight we are discussing the first part of the fifth season of Breaking Bad, and I think that one of the things that we should start off by doing is kind of talking about uh, how AMC has kind of done this in the past by dividing seasons up, and I think it's it's had some mixed success, but I have to say, as somebody who watched the first half of the final season of Mad Men and was wholly unimpressed with that season and being a little nervous about this first half, I can tell you that my concerns were were very quickly alleviated and I really, really enjoyed just this kind of half season. I agree. And even the writers and directors and producers and editors of the show listening to their podcast were very happy to get it. They are they they feel talk just talking with other people in the industry who have twenty two episode seasons to cut and mix, produce, film, all that stuff and turn around to have essentially a way more time for eight episodes, especially with the great deal of care and time and attention each script needs to be paid for Breaking Bad. It was somewhat done out of necessity. I'm sure AMC was thrilled to get another summer's worth of Breaking Bad episodes for their network, but for the show itself too, I think they were really happy to not have to rush anything, get three extra episodes to tell their story and really give the the care and attention, I think. The show has always done and, and definitely deserved for its last season. I remember, even before it was an AMC thing, HBO, at least with its DVD releases, started doing like half seasons. This is about the time when like a box set of The Sopranos on DVD was like $100. And I think either the last season or the last you know two or three they divided into parts one and part two. And I think even entourage, a couple of them did it with that. I don't remember if they aired that way. I don't think they did, but the way that they just released stuff like that, I found to be a cash grab. But I think especially with breaking bad and how strong it ended anyways, and just, gosh, you were, you were not, not coming back for part two by the end of part one. That was for damn sure. That is certainly true as we will get to, uh, very shortly, with over the next hour or so, we will be discussing each of the eight episodes. And typically what we have done is we've kind of done more character-by-character character recaps. And I think with 13 episodes, trying to do episode recaps would be a bit on the unruly side. 
but I think it's much more appropriate for these half seasons that we are going to be discussing eight episodes individually, especially because three of the major characters are very rarely separated. Walt, Jesse, and Mike are very much around each other for a lot of these eight episodes. So I think it only makes sense that we kind of do those kinds of recaps. And just to kind of put a bow on that, that conversation, Kevin, I, I do want to tell you that we, we have gone from $100 DVD sets to where now you could just watch the Sopranos for free on HBO, even without a subscription. So that just shows you how much things have changed. Yeah. And I guess obviously the Sopranos at this point is a, well, you know, I guess at this point it's a 13-year-old show. So, but at the time when these are coming out and the show is still on the air, there's there's a lot more of a, a demand for them, and there was no streaming and all that other stuff. But yeah, t- times have certainly certainly changed because even that's now on, it's on Amazon Prime too. If you have that, so not only is there one place to watch it and for free, but there's several platforms where you can just binge watch the whole thing. And that is that's my big. Um, cultural black hole in television yours was breaking bad minus the soprano so it's something i need to take care of all right let's get to episode one live free or die we begin with walt celebrating his 52nd birthday he has hair and he's uh basically in a denny's type diner on his own and he makes the number with the bacon this is something that will eventually pay off in the future And we also see Walt cleaning his house, getting rid of all the evidence uh, from the end of season four as he finally killed Gus Fring. We even get a repeat of the scene. We see that scene again with him uh, telling Skylar that he won. And I know that in our text chat, that uh, that has become one of our most popular gifts. Has to be done. I think it's probably a popular use, gift usage across all places you know that and roof pizza and a a couple others are on my favorites on my iphone to share as reactions or just out of general silliness also during this period walt buys a huge gun from his gun guy again played by jim beaver and we're gonna get we're gonna get back to jim beaver and some of the other guest guys us guest stars because kevin has some insight on that and Basically, the concept of this episode is that Walt, Jesse, and Mike have to team up because Gus's laptop is still out there, and there is a lot of potential evidence, at least they think, that they need to wipe. And in order to do that, there there is a there is a huge argument about how they're going to do this because the laptop is in evidence. And Kevin Ford, who of all people Despite the fact that we have a chemist, we have a longtime criminal who has obviously seen some shit. Who is the person and what does he suggest in order to fix this problem? Well, that would be Jesse suggesting magnets. And I really appreciated the the humor of this scene as Walt and Mike are having this argument about how they're going to do it. And Jesse in the foreground is saying, what about magnets? And he has to increasingly get louder to finally get their attention and then what do you know it's a good idea and the one they end up going with i think that what you get in this early part of the season is i think you get a couple of heist episodes one of which it is much more pronounced a little bit later in the season but even live free or die has a little bit of that heist feeling of they have to deal with this impossible situation and i think that this episode really is not about There's a little bit of character development as these three have to team up with each other, even though Mike is clearly not happy about what Walt and Jesse have done. But they kind of have to team up. And 
uh, take care of this problem. And I think just the way the visuals work with them executing the plan, the visual of all the stuff against the wall and with the van and having to abandon the van, I think this was a, a solid first episode in introducing the idea that Mike is going to kind of become a part of their team. One of the other things that we get in this episode is because Walt has killed Gus Fring, we see a certain level of arrogance just in his delivery, in his cadence. This is something that we are going to hear throughout the rest of the season. There is a confidence to Walt that really hasn't been there in previous seasons. I think we've seen hints of it with him as Heisenberg, but in this season, we see the full realization of Walt Heisenberg and who he is as a person and as a quote-unquote drug lord. Most definitely, he was able to to take out this, this kingpin and What's interesting, and this kind of unravels in these first three episodes when you see this relationship with Jesse, Walt, and Mike, is Walt's really the only one who kind of – not the only one. Obviously, Gus did a lot of bad things, but you know he was copacetic with Mike. He was growing fond of Jesse, and Jesse's really only issue with Gus was that he clearly had intentions to killing Walt. But Walt was really the only person who had this hatred for Gus and wanted to kill him. So where the three of them are coming from in terms of how to go forward and their opinion of Gus and where they see themselves in the wake of Gus being killed off is very, very different. I also think going back to the beginning of the episode, one of the reasons or the reason this is called live free or die is that's the New Hampshire state motto. And we see that's the license plate on Walt's car as he as he comes out of the Steiner. So we start with a flash forward of his, this 52nd birthday. What I think is really interesting about Breaking Bad is they very purposefully don't tell you when this time period of this show is taking place. It's really only Walt's birthday that kind of earmarks how much time has passed. You know, there's no holiday episodes. There's no summer break for Walt Jr. They, they do their best to make it so you can't keep track of when and where a lot of these events are happening. And it's re- and it, and this is the only passage of time notification you have. And so the whole series starts with his 50th birthday. Now we know it's at least been two years later and then we'll eventually get 51 later in this. So that gives you kind of a a nice passage of time, but they obviously they keep this dangling flash forward at the very beginning to whet your appetite for what's to come later. But you can already see like these three already have their issues of just their kind of differences of philosophies out of Gus Fring dying and what to do next. But also now you get the impression for the first half of the season is not only are they going to continue their work, but staying one step ahead of Hank is kind of their day-to-day operative. Yes, we do get a little bit of Hank exploring the blown-up room. And I think the one thing that we know, that I've known anyway, is that the end game is always going to be Hank versus Waltz. I I don't need to spoil myself it's it's been where the direction is going and they're they're getting ever closer uh, to that as they go through the, the the first half of season 5 so one of the other subplots that i think is worth mentioning is everything that is going on with skylar and 
I don't think that they really give her a lot to do in terms of her own storyline. I think they've done that much better in past seasons. But again, she is so connected to Walt. Uh, she's being very cold to him throughout the, this first episode and really throughout the, the, the whole season. But one of the big revelations is as Saul visits Skylar and tells Skylar that Ted is alive – and I'm going to be honest, Kevin, I uh, I did not see this coming. And the visual of Skylar going to see a seriously injured Ted is both comedic and tragic at the same time. And that's something that uh, that's definitely something that is going to stick with me. And it obviously sticks with Skylar as she goes into uh, a state of depression. But fucking Ted is alive. Yep, yep. I, and I forgot that they showed him in the first episode of the season. I thought it was much, much later in the season when they when they showed him. But yeah, they they went through a lot of work to make him look terrible because you know he's he's a pretty handsome guy in general, but to see him bald and in the the halo to keep him straight and just in such distress really leaves an impression with Skyler. It's the combination of that and also understanding that Walt was the one behind the bombing in the the old folks' home that ultimately killed Gus that really makes her almost, you know, essentially scared of her husband. And and it seems like any control she may have had, which we saw in season four, is totally gone. Walt is somebody she can't control, and that's really left her in this really just horrified state for the first few episodes. And so – I think she's relieved Ted is alive in some respects, you know, and he tells her right away, like, I won't say a thing. But I think she was the one who made that happen, ultimately, with uh, using Saul's guys to make sure he paid his debts and all that. I wonder if part of it, too, is she's ashamed of her actions. And then in turn, it's like, okay, well, this had to happen because of what Walt's done. But there has to be some internal blame for what occurred, even if it's what she had to do because of what Walt has been doing. Right. It seems to me like a lot of what is going on is so internalized with Skylar at this point that, you know, she has, she has a very tough role to play because that is something that in movies and television as an actor is really hard to do. It's really hard to kind of portray the, the internal struggles that you're going with. And I mean, I think that Anna Gunn has always done a pretty impressive job of playing Skylar. It is kind of a thankless role at times. And I think that she does a very good job overall of the season, despite the fact that she really doesn't get a whole lot to do on her own. I think she does uh, a good job playing against Brian Cranston. And like I said, I, I cannot praise Brian Cranston enough uh, for the work that he does in this season. And you even get this impression that Walt knows that he cannot be controlled. And you get that confidence at the end of this episode when he says that they're done when he says so. And that is him very clearly taking control of the situation and then giving the creepiest hug that a man could ever give someone and says that he forgives Skylar for what she has said and done. I mean, it, it doesn't get any creepier and super villainy than that. I still don't think it rivals the creepiness of happy birthday, but I think it shows in his psyche. He's like, Oh, well she's damaged because of the way that she saw Ted. He doesn't take into any considerations that what he's been doing could affect her negatively. 
Certainly. Any 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 other thoughts on this uh, on the season premiere before we get to episode two? I mean, I just thought it was a really solid season premiere, and I certainly don't think it holds a candle to the other episodes. But very rarely do season premieres ever really excel as much as some of the later episodes in a Breaking Bad season. Certainly not. But I I do think the big takeaway for me is that opening scene where you're just like, what is this future? For Walt that he has where he's where he has hair again, he's has New Hampshire, he's going by a different name, all this other stuff. I think the lasting impression most people had, regardless of everything else, you know, seeing Ted again and, and some of the other things that took place was just like, all right, I'm going to keep that future Walt moment tucked away for later in the season. Let's go to episode two as we are introduced to Madrigal, which is the name of the episode and the name of of a company, as uh, we see the Los Poyos Hermanos sign coming down at a German factory where taste testing is going on. You have no idea. They basically go the first three or four minutes without anything happening that we know of because there's just this taste test and it's clearly designed to be this very humorous scene but eventually the police show up and uh, one of the executives who was unnamed uh, commits suicide in the bathroom i i can't say that committing suicide is ever funny but breaking bad has always gone out of its way to do dark comedy and this is yet another example of that as the man I, I mean he basically he basically takes those things that you would see at a hospital and i guess electrocute not electrocutes himself but jump starts his heart stops his heart and he keels over and dies and this goes unexplained and we really don't have any idea what's going on up until uh, later on in the episode, when we get a little bit closer, we get to know who Lydia is and some of the other things that happen in the episode. Yeah, it's again, I think these these openers are really just like, what the hell did I just watch and how is this going to connect to everything? And we'll see that in other episodes, too. But yeah, I mean, it's a it's a kind of a shock to the system. No pun intended. When you start with uh, them taste testing new sauces for their tater tots like kick-ass sauce and here's this older gentleman just looking like he's dead inside tasting these and then all of a sudden they're in a rush because hank's starting to put together these connections in his head and he knows what's coming and he decides to take his own life quite an interesting opening of this episode here is it in this opening or later when we see the other restaurants with pollos like in the same building as as a like all the other different companies owned by Madrigal. We see some of them. I didn't really write any of them down because I didn't think they would be of any importance. Should I have been writing them down? So there's only one connection that I found to be very interesting is that one of the restaurants owned by Madrigal is is called Burgermatic, which is the name of the fictional fast food restaurant in the movie Home Fries written by Vince Gilligan. So if if I'm putting this together, uh, there's a shared universe between Home Fries and Breaking Bad. What if there is a shared universe between the X-Files, another show that had episodes written by Vince Gilligan and Breaking Bad? I have to imagine there's some winks or homages or nods to X-Files, but I cannot pretend to be an X-Files connoisseur to, to tell you. I, there's a lot of, of guest stars and and things of that nature that that are um now full-time people with breaking bad and a lot of the same producers and editors and stuff that are back but as far as overt or intentional connections i'm i'm unfortunately not your guy well that's unfortunate but 
what we can talk about is Walt manipulating another situation as the quote-unquote, the, the rice and cigarette is still out in the wild, at least according to what Jesse believes. And we get a scene of Walt helping Jesse to find the rice and cigarette, even though he has put it in a very special place, Kevin. Uh, and this is this is a place that we have come to know. Uh, we talked about ambient noises and Jesse literally just having noise going around so he doesn't have to hear himself think. And this pays off in tremendous fashion, Kevin, as where is the rice and cigarette? Well, it's, it's in the Roomba, but definitely planted there by Walt. And I'm really glad this is kind of that hanging thread that they cleaned up because when Jesse realizes that Brock was poisoned by Lily of the Valley and not the rice and cigarette that leaves the, okay, well, where the hell is the rice and cigarette? This isn't something I can just leave lying around to be found by somebody. I need to find this thing. And so Walt then has to fake find it for him and, and look for his house. And then poof, suddenly it's in the Roomba that Jesse's already looked in. And again, I think we see signs of this this abusive relationship, and you mentioned it with Waltz both manipulating the breakup, manipulating this scene, and I also like the fact that it's in a Roomba, and you said this was a thread that they needed to clean up. Well done, Kevin. You really you got the puns going today. We also get Walt and Jesse, more so Walt, trying to attempt a partnership with Mike because it is all business. Nothing is personal. The best, one of the best lines probably of this season, and it's something that I think is really important that I want to bring up, is that Mike calls Walt uh, a ticking time bomb waiting to go off, which is a fitting metaphor given what Walt did to Gus and what Walt has done in the past. But I think this is an apt metaphor because Walt continues to solve problems, but then he creates more problems. That's really what this show has been about is that every time a character solves a problem, that something even worse comes along. And this is continued by the fact that Hank is meeting with Madrigal and the DC, the DEA begins their pursuit of Mike. So even though they've killed Gus, the DA and Hank are still on the on the hunt, so to speak. And I think we get a really great interrogation scene. I think the thing about this season is that even if there are certain episodes that aren't as good as others, there is at least one, I would say, like five-star, tremendous, unbelievably well-executed, well-written scene. And for, it, for me in episode two, the interrogation scene with Mike, Hank, and Steven is the best scene in this episode because you get Mike at his best, just resisting, not giving them anything. Hank clearly knows that something is up. He can't quite put it all together yet, but Hank is starting to put the pieces together. And Steven is there. I mean, he's at least there. And But yeah, I just, I really have a tremendous amount of admiration for the way that they put the care into these individual scenes. And this interrogation scene, I think sometimes when you get into those scenes, there's kind of an unequal balance between the characters. But in this case, Mike and Hank are equals, and they are both doing everything they can to get the advantage, and neither one of them is giving an inch, and I really like that. Yeah, that scene is fantastic. One of my favorite parts of season five Part one is with Gus out of the way, Jonathan Banks, who plays Mike Ehrmantraut, gets a lot more time on the screen. And he is just absolutely tremendous. That and that what I like, like you said, in the in the interrogation scene is neither one of them are giving each other anything. And then Hank thinks he has this trump card at the end when Mike's about to leave and he mentions 
the offshore bank account in his granddaughter's name that has two million in it, and he just he just says like I have no idea what you're talking about. It it seems very clear from what we know about Mike that his granddaughter would be his Achilles heel, but even in that moment, he doesn't show any sort of reaction to it. And that goes to show that Mike really has his stuff together. And I think that's shown in that same scene with Walt when they had their argument. He mentions the ticking time bomb. I think something else he mentions is that he tells Walt, you know, just because you shot Jesse James doesn't make you Jesse James, which I think goes to show the level of respect that Mike had for Gus. And it probably angers Walt because I think he thought he was going to become the new Gus suddenly once he killed him. And he's just not getting that that uh, the the same sort of respect that Mike showed Gus from Mike now, even though all this has gone down. So so much good stuff with with Mike bouncing between the two and really being the only person who's kind of clued in on just about everything. And he knows what's gone on previously with Gus's organization and every every loose end that would need to be tied up the people to keep quiet. And now this new enterprise that Walt is trying to put together, he's the connective tissue, and boy, does he just do a tremendous job. Mike is also dealing with some of the ex-employees of Gus Fring, and one of the things that we discover is that uh, he has a relationship with Chow, and poor Chow, uh, unfortunately, he is he calls Mike under, under threat by someone with a gun, and Mike obviously knows what the deal is he knows what is going on so he goes to the scene fully prepared to kill a couple people uh chow is unfortunately dead and he runs into another gunman chris chris who was hired by an employee of madrigal and i it's it's pretty shocking to just have mike just kill this guy but i think it's it sets up the later scene uh, with Mike and Lydia very, very well, because it's very clear that Mike is intre- Mike will do what he needs to do in order to make sure that he doesn't get thrown in jail or his granddaughter isn't put at risk. And this this episode, I mean, this this first half of the season is almost a, an entire showcase for Jonathan Banks. And this is the kind of thing that leads one to believe that this is how you get a spinoff, because if you could put a character in this situation and he becomes so interesting, then I could totally understand why Vince Gilligan and Peter Gould a couple of years from now are like, you know, maybe we should do a spinoff and have Mike involved in it. Yep, he's he's certainly, I think one of the characters that's one of those universally beloved types by anybody who watched the show. And, you know, he's similar to Gus and, and like you said, where he has to kill this person to keep himself protected. And that's a lot of what Gus has to do is making sure that there's nobody out there who could possibly come back to them and just anything he needs to do to make sure that he stays out of prison, that his granddaughter stays safe. But for some reason, because of, of who he is and the, he, he shows more of his heart and his emotions and the rationales, especially when pitted against Walt, that it doesn't come off as evil that in the same way that Gus Fring did in seasons three and four. And I think that's the, the beauty of, of Mike Ehrmantraut and why he's one of the most beloved characters in Breaking Bad overall. And one of the things that I do want to say is I think this episode may be a little bit concerned that we were unpeeling another layer to, to this this drug deal onion. And I think that this is something that a lot of shows do where they kill someone or they take out some 
big bad. And then it's, well, this goes even higher. And I was a little bit concerned that we were going to go in this direction, but thankfully they keep it pretty restricted to Lydia as Lydia is the magical representative that we pretty much see for the rest of the season. And that is very much a relief to me because I have no interest in dealing with a giant corporation at this point and introducing them this late in the game. And I think the way that Lydia is portrayed is is really interesting because I think we have seen very few women involved in the drug trade. Um, they've kind of been cursory characters, but here you have somebody directly involved, and she knows a lot of information, and she is, in fact, somebody who tried to kill people. She tried to hire this person, Chris, to kill people, and uh, she almost loses her life multiple times throughout the season. Uh, it is perhaps most perilous in this episode in the scene with Mike at her home with the nanny and her daughter. Yeah, I am in agreement with you about them. I like the idea of the the macro concept of this larger corporation, but keeping it on a micro level with Lydia being the the sole person you're going to be dealing with from that organization so it doesn't get too unwieldy. And I do think introducing a female character in that world is very interesting. And even when they're talking about it, the DEA is there like there's no way she can be dirty. She's too buttoned up and she gets too nervous too easily. So she's that the exact kind of person you'd want in this role is because she's so unassuming, but also gets to show off her smarts and her brilliance and just how well she has this all tied up in working with Mike and then later Walt. And yeah, that scene at the end when they come to her home, which is in Texas, by the way. So she's a little bit removed from New Mexico. So Mike has to make quite the trek out there to make an impression. And just entering their their home and learning about their past connection was all, to me, very interesting. And something I want to mention that they talked about on the Breaking Bad podcast was Laura Frazier, who plays Lydia. She is a Scottish actress who does have a uh, – not a thick, but a but a very pronounced Scottish accent. I guess she's classically trained, but it impresses me that not only did she have to put on an American accent, but in other scenes, she then had to speak German. So she's putting on an accent to then speak a language she doesn't know. Made me all the more impressed with her performances throughout this entire season of Breaking Bad and made me appreciate her just on the level of, of an actress. Um, and that's something I wanted to share because that cannot be easy, but it goes to show that you know, what, what a pro she was in this role. And she definitely, to me, added a lot to season five. I would certainly agree with you on that. And yeah, you would never be able to tell that. I, I didn't even know that she was a Scottish actress until you just mentioned it. And yeah, her accent work is, uh, is very, very good. I think that is a good place to end our discussion of Madrigal. Let's get to hazard pay as we are introduced to another lawyer in the Breaking Bad universe. Another great name, Kevin. Danny Waxberger, I believe that's how you pronounce it, or Waxberger? Yeah, one of the two. Something like that. Danny Waxberger, as we see him talking with various members of Gus's gang who are in prison, and Mike is his paralegal. And, Kevin, I feel like they designed the suit that Mike wears specifically to illustrate that Mike is not the type of person who wears suits. And I, and I give them a lot of credit for that. He definitely does not look like he is comfortable in a suit whatsoever. And as a viewer, I'm like, no, this just doesn't feel right. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there was definitely some some very particular costuming as to what type of suit Mike would wear to something like this. And it's obviously one that he he doesn't give a hoot about. It's probably something that's been in his closet, hasn't been tailored or fitted or ironed in a while. And it just uh, got to put it on when the situation calls for it. So, yeah, you have it when you need it, but you don't really want to wear it. 
We also get a scene with Saul taking the trio of Mike, Walt, and Jesse on a tour of factories. None of them are satisfactory, but you know, I'm not a big viewer of a lot of HGTV shows, but I kind of know the pattern that those shows fall shows fall into, and I couldn't help but think like this is exactly like some of those shows, except they're not looking for homes; they're looking for a place to make drugs. And just, I really love when the show gets into the nitty gritty of what it would actually take to have a house where they could, or any place where they could make uh, this meth. And I really like that scene because. It's not necessarily something where they're forwarding the plot necessarily, but I think you're getting a hint as to the character of all four of these people. Saul very much has the attitude of, let's just get this done. Walt has a very specific set of needs and of purposes of things that he wants to do and execute. Jesse kind of goes with the flow, and Mike is just looking very stern the whole time. And eventually it gets to a point where Walt suggests using fumigated house as temporary labs instead of one factory and uh, that that seems to be the idea that works out the best because ultimately they don't have to worry about one spot uh, being uh, identified. I think one of the unfortunate things though, Kevin, this raises in my mind, what, the odds are pretty good that they're going to leave behind some sort of residue or something, right? That this is, it's, this is going to be really hard to execute. I can't speak to the that as somebody who's one never cooked math and two never been part of a, a pest control. You'd think by this point, especially with the with the walkthrough scene, they're talking about every little thing that can go wrong or why a place isn't right for it. Something that Saul did not take into consideration, or maybe even some other people in the team who are like, "This place is perfect," and Walt does say, "No, it's not because of X, Y, and Z." It goes to show the level of care and attention to detail they take. So maybe there wouldn't be a level of contamination left behind because whatever contamination might be in the air or what have you, presumably would, once you take down that infrastructure, would then be fumigated by whatever is being used to kill all the rodents and insects and what have you from the pest control company. That's that's something I can at least explain away in my head to make it so they wouldn't get caught. And And also, if there was a contamination, maybe it's something that the layman wouldn't be aware of. There's a lot to talk about in this episode. I think that we get the scene with Waltz going to Jesse's house. Andrea and Brock are there. This leads to Walt awkwardly staring at Brock because he knows <laughs> that he poisoned him. So that, yes. that's a little bit on the awkward side. And, uh, and, you, then, and you know what? I do think that he feels bad it had to happen. There's a lot of scenes in this where – there, there's obviously he's either te- has to, having to fabricate a story or something like that, but I do feel like there's a lot of genuine feelings coming from Walton situations, and this is one of them. I do think he didn't want to poison the little boy, and I think he does feel bad about it, and because of that, it is indeed awkward. Yes, and this leads to a very deep conversation as Walt, again, manipulates the situation, and he doesn't directly tell Jesse to break up with Andrea and Brock, but by the end of the episode, we do find out that Jesse has indeed broken up with uh, with Andrea. So this conversation clearly does have an impact on Jesse, and I think that one of the things I, I've talked about this in terms of being an abusive relationship, and one of the things that abusers do in order to get their way is they isolate uh, the people that they are in a relationship with. So I think this is kind of representative of that. That Walt has. 
um, doesn't want Jesse to have other people in his life, and perhaps it is because of his own guilt that he just doesn't want to deal with Andrea and Brock. That may certainly be part of it, but you definitely get the sense that Walt is continuing to manipulate and try to control Jesse uh, throughout the first half of this season, and the, that conversation, I think, is really representative of that. Yeah, and I think that that would be the largest temptation for Jesse to to want to get out and go on to a more regular life would be the more he, time he spends with Andrea and Brock and realizes that, hey, you know, I have all this money. This time at home with them is really sweet. I really don't need to be doing this meth thing with Walt anymore. I'm going to get out. But if you take that out of the equation, it's the only thing he has. That makes it a lot easier to control him. So, yeah, I think you you hit the nail right on the head. And I do like that. The fumigated houses solution introduced us to another side of of Saul's business practices, his dirty business practices, and also got us to get Badger and Skinny Pete back for a scene. Yeah, they're definitely not involved in a lot of this season, but it was uh, it was still good uh, to see them if for just a little while. And we also get Marie involved in a couple of important scenes as well as Skylar completely snaps on her. And I think that's really important because we've seen Skylar kind of moping around the first couple episodes, understandably, given everything that you that you mentioned and everything uh, that has gone on. But we also discover uh, what Marie tells Walt about this breakdown. And this leads to Walt, again, trying to manipulate a situation for his own wants and desires as he tells Marie about uh, the affair and everything that happened there. And uh, this leads to another scene, Kevin. Uh, Breaking Bad, I think they do a really good job of sometimes being subtle and not quite telling you everything that's going to happen in a particular season. But there is a scene of Walt and Walt Jr. watching Scarface, Kevin. And I have to be honest, that scene is not subtle in what the in the message you're trying to get across. Oh, God, but it's so funny when, like... Walt has the baby and and uh, Walt Jr.'s there and they're both kind of having a laugh at the say hello to my little free friend scene. And, and Skylar comes out and watches them and Walt makes a comment like, oh, geez, everybody dies in this one, huh? And that doesn't make Skylar feel any better with everything she's been going through. And poor, poor Marie, you know, between her and Hank, Hank's putting these things together and getting closer. At least he thinks it's like he 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 gets closer and then something else happens and it gets taken away. But for Marie with everything going on with Walt and Skylar, like it's just not adding up. Like it's not making sense. And he's probably sensing that something's going to come out or I need to say something before Skylar does. And that's when he puts the affair thing out there. And then it, it sort of shuts her up for a little bit and also makes her realize, okay, maybe that's what's causing the problems at home. But you you get, I got the sense anyways, that like Marie is asking too many questions because all the weirdness with their family just is not adding up at this time. I, I mentioned that each episode has a scene that I think is very much appreciated in just the way that it is executed. And for me, the scene that I'm talking about in episode three is the one at the end where they are dividing the money up. And Kevin, you really get a masterclass in how hard it is to run a drug operation and just how much money it costs. Because Kevin, you have to keep people quiet. You have to pay distributors. You have to pay drivers. If there is one thing the show has clearly illustrated for me, Kevin, is that I should never get involved in trying to be a drug overlord. Because even though there is the potential for a high six-figure payout, there's also a lot of overhead. And Kevin, that's just not something I'm willing to deal with. 
No, it definitely is a lot of work. And I think it's it's a great visualization as you see the three giant piles of money. And as as Hank, who's been designated as he's the business guy, Walt doesn't mess with that. Jesse doesn't mess with that. Just as Hank doesn't mess with their cooking. And he's explaining, okay, here's how this money gets taken away. Here's how this. And you see each of their giant stacks of money suddenly become not so giant anymore. And that's a great representation of how much it goes into to running this this industry and, of course, causes a lot of issues with Walt as there's a lot of money being paid to a lot of people to keep quiet that he had nothing to deal with. And I thought that argument with him and Walt was awesome, too. Again, illustrating some of the points earlier and just showing – I don't know Walt's greed is necessarily the right word, but it goes to show that – he might be a little over his head with just how big and expansive this goes with him being involved in this. And also it's just one other piece of the puzzle he has no control over, but yeah, that, that money breakdown scene. And also there's some really excellent talk on the podcast with this episode. And then episode eight about uh, the work involved in getting and, and what it takes for money to be shown in certain episodes. I didn't know this, but apparently there was a time where you couldn't even photograph money back in the day. The government does not like, when fake money is produced or in any way tampered with. I don't know if you're aware of that, but yeah, great, great scene. Definitely the, the standout of hazard pay. I really enjoyed Badger and um, Skinny Pete shopping at the music store for the giant music cases to store everything and their, uh, their rapport with the store owner there. Yeah. I think there's just a lot of really, really interesting scenes that really just show how deep this goes. And it's something that we've seen in other shows as well since then. I think a show like Narcos and shows like Zero 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 on Amazon have also gotten into some of these issues. But where I think Breaking Bad is able to do this so well is just I think the characters are are so engaging. And you've been with them for these four or five seasons at this point. So you kind of know what you're getting yourself into when you're dealing with them. And Walt is just becoming a capitalist at this point. I think that is very clearly the message. And yes, I undoubtedly, a lot of it has to do with greed, but he is becoming a true capitalist in every sense of the word by the end here because he's hemming and hawing over – he's still going to get $100,000, and yet he's pissed off because he's losing $200,000 to pay all of these employees and other people. Sure. that de- I mean I'm not saying it has no part of it, but um... – a lot of my takeaway of this was like, yes, the money is great, but there's a, a lot more to it from Walt for why he's continuing to do this. Well, it's too much work, Kevin, and I'm way too lazy, and I know you are too, to be able to try to do this. Oh, most definitely. All right, so episode four, the name of the episode is 51. We get Walt selling his old car and getting new cars for both he and his son. And this time, Kevin, Walt gives no fucks. He is going to justify the use of these brand new cars and whatever midlife crisis he's going through. And he he does not care what Skylar thinks at all. I will say those new cars are pretty swanky. Yeah, they're, they're pretty sweet. And there's a lot of good talk about the not the uh, not sponsorships but the working with the companies for these cars and these shows and stuff um that that was most interesting to me but yeah just just the difference between last season with the the care that Skyler wanted them to make sure they don't have two flashy cars so people raise questions to buying two cars and then just going nuts and the two of them just having the time of their lives at the beginning quite the quite the 180 from where they sat in uh season 4 
In addition, Lydia is in danger at Madrigal as some poor sap gets arrested for what's going on as Hank is continuing his investigation. We did not mention this in the prior episode, but Hank's boss was removed from his position because of everything that went down in the previous investigation. And it is in this episode that Hank is offered a promotion. And Kevin, I think this is one of those situations where, yes, it is kind of a happy moment for Hank to be offered a promotion. But with a show like this, you know that there is going to be some, uh, there's going to be some poison in that their uh, promotion or that there's going to be some issue that comes up because it's breaking bad. And this is what we do. For sure. And there is a lot of sorrow for the boss having to lose his job, but I, in a way, I appreciate it because that's real world consequences when he, uh, and what I loved most about this scene is as they're having their, he's having his drinks with Steve and Hank and he's talking about like, gosh, I can't believe this guy was right under my nose the whole time. He came over to my house. He had barbecues. He taught me this great way to, to cook fish on the grill. I can't believe he was right under my nose the whole time. And I, and I, had the wrong impression of him with this whole time. Sounds like something similar might come up later. I don't know. Just just making a little bit of a prediction there. Just throwing it out there. You're throwing darts at a dartboard, seeing what sticks, right? Yeah. We'll see. We'll see if, uh, if maybe some other character, possibly one sitting in the room, uh, has a similar revelation later on. So at the beginning of this season, we saw Walt celebrating his 52nd birthday. It is in this episode where Walt reflects on the past year at his 51st birthday as we see him again manipulating the bacon around to creating the number 51. And then later on, they're at a a small family gathering with Hank and Marie. And Skyler goes into the deep end of the pool. Uh, Kevin, again, not subtle. Not subtle, but also I like the way the whole scene was acted out like she was – standing at the edge of the pool pondering going in and and not doing it and she did it essentially to cause concern so that Hank and Marie would take the kids away and that would get them out of the house and she would get their her safety needs covered so maybe not subtle but I did think it was creative especially as as she's standing at the edge of the pool looking in quiet as Walt is reflecting back on the past year and, you know, gosh, you know, the ki- the cancer scare and, and everything else that's been going on and really reflecting on that and kind of counting his blessings. And then suddenly there goes uh, Skyler into the proverbial deep end. Um, thought it was done very well, even if it even if the subtlety is uh, not lost on us or the lack of. So I think there's a bit of an issue that gets raised with this idea of, oh, Skyler's going to give the kids to Hank and Marie because they are going to be safer. Was it not Hank who was the person that was being threatened at the end of season three and into season four as they had to literally hide and potentially be threatened by Gus Fring? I mean, I think that that is, that is an issue that this episode raises and that doesn't really get addressed is – are the kids really safer? Hank is a member of the DEA and Hank has already been shot at and has been threatened. So I don't necessarily agree with Skylar's logic here. Well, they're gu- well, Gus is dead. So what threat is there? But there's other drug dealers and they're going to be going after Hank too, right? Eh, apparently not. If he's made it through his whole DEA career and this is the only guy who's come after him. I agree with you that the, the execution of the scene itself is is very good and 
I understand getting the kids away, but I'm just, I'm not totally sure I'm there with the logic of that. But there is something that I'm all in for, and that is Skylar telling Walt that she can't wait for the cancer to come back to kill him. That is an all-time burn line. Really chilling. I, I like the when they're in the we're in the bedroom and she kind of lays it all out there. Like you win, I have no control over this. So, and the takeaway is like I'm waiting for the cancer to come back because that's the only thing you seemingly can't that you will not be able to control. You can use medicines and and chemo and radiation and all that stuff to try to kill it, but at the end of the day, that's the only thing that he doesn't have 100 percent control over. And I I think it it goes to show her that she feels like she's a victim. She has no control. She's scared of her husband. It's and, and even like the scene where she's walking around and then he keeps following her. It's like the, any bit of space that she gets, he keeps following and closing that space. It's just, it's just very well orchestrated. Everything going on between Walt and Skylar and showing the new dynamic between the two of them since last season. And despite this, we get Walt saying that they are not ramping down and we do get Jesse wishing Walt a happy birthday and giving him the present of a watch, a watch that is focused on. We don't really necessarily get a payoff in this first half, but I have to imagine that that watch is going to play some role or some significance at some point in this season. Well, I think it is significant that the the last shot was it going faster and, and ticking in the into the ticking time bomb comment made by Hank in, in uh, episode two. I think there was definitely a connection between the two of those. So somewhere along the way in episode four, uh, there is some discussion of Mike and Lydia and potentially what's going to happen. And this leads us into episode five, which is Dead Freight. And Kevin, this episode starts with a, a random kid. I feel like I've seen this kid in other TV shows and movies, but we see him just at the beginning riding on his bike and picking up a tarantula and then driving off. And because it's Breaking Bad, Kevin, you should be immediately concerned for this child's life because that's how the show works. I don't know that a kid was – if you've seen him in anything else, I think he at the time had aspirations to be – like a stunt man. Um, like he was just apparently like a local kid or somebody they knew who rode dirt bikes and, and had these aspirations. And so he was perfect for the scene, but yeah, he's, he's riding there and picking up a tarantula. And, and again, it's one of those interests. You're like, what the hell is that? And the episode goes on, you kind of forget about it. And then and purposefully you're forgetting about it. And they're throwing a lot of red herrings in your way to think, okay, this is how it's going to turn out. Or this is going to be the way that it gets blown up. And then, you circle back at the end and you, you pay it off. It's a, uh, it's a, a, as a one episode, I know you love this episode as a, as a one episode kind of story that circles back to itself. It was really well done. Yes. This is probably my favorite episode of the first half. And there's certainly a lot of contenders in the second half, but this one for me uh, just works out really well. And we get a say, scene of Hank moving into his new office. And what I love is that he is interacting with Walt Walt gets very emotional. He tries to get real. And as we know through the first four and a half seasons, Kevin, Hank is not the type of person who can do these kinds of things. He cannot be an emotional support person. This is not what he does. So the moment that Walt tries to do all of these things, Hank decides that he has to go and get some coffee. <laughs> and for no other reason than he needs to get away from all these feelings. And 
Walt, knowing this, again, manipulating the situation, he puts bugs in while Hank goes to get coffee. I I really love this scene because it plays off of the things that we know about Hank, and it plays off of what Walt knows about Hank. It's it's perfect. And part of me is like, gosh, I wonder if if Walter White might have been a better actor than Brian Cranston because he and, and again, this is one of those other things where I think Walt isn't an actor. Right. And I think he needs something real that he knows is going to get him emotional. And I so I do think there is some truth in what he speaks and how he feels about the Skyler situation. But also he knows this is what's going to get me emotional enough for Hank to leave. So I have this opportunity to bug the room. So he's really. I think his his synapses are really just sparking and he's putting a lot of these connections together to to get what they need to. I don't know that I would offer coffee to somebody who needed to to calm down. That was something I don't know why that stuck with me. Maybe tea or water or, or something else. But I don't know about coffee. I don't know. A hot beverage that that has caffeine. I don't know. I don't know about that choice. Hank doesn't know he because he doesn't know how to deal with emotions. This is <laughs> That's, you're right. You're right. Clearly been established, and this is the perfect Hank reaction. What, do you think Hank drinks tea? Because I I can't see it. Not a chance. But I, they probably have some in the break room or something, right? I, I we don't need to go into this level of it. But that was, for some reason that struck me. We're like coffee. That's a that's a per- peculiar choice. But he what did about, make sure to know that a Walt took it with cream and sugar. What about what about his beer? He could bring out his beer for him to drink. They, and I love oh, I love that Schrader Brow gets a shout out in the in the last episode too. Yeah, I think this is the best time to mention that because we've got a got a lot to get to with that episode. Uh, Lydia is captured and almost killed again. This time she offers a solution to the methylamine problem as they need methylamine to make meth, and there is a, a limited supply and they they have to use uh, their wits and their wiles to plan a train heist. Kevin, I love heist movies. I think one of the things that I talked about on a recent season, the season finale episode of Superhero Pantheon, is I talked about that movie where there is a time heist as they have to go back in time and get the stones. And I referenced one of my favorite heist movies of all time, which is Ocean's Eleven, which to me is the perfect heist film. I think it's the best executed. And to me, what makes a great heist movie is you have to get a group of characters together who may not have a lot in common, but who have to complete a task. And in this case, while Jesse and Mike not exactly getting along and they involve a couple of other people. We get Todd involved. Todd played by Jesse Plemons, who we're going to talk about extensively. We also get the return of Bill Burr as part of this uh, train heist as well. And they have to thoroughly plan, plan this heist. The thing that I love about these scenes is just the way the machinations, the way that they have to figure out and account for literally anything. And if they are, even if they are seen by one person, that's the thing they get across. They're basically screwed. And they could be investigated by the FBI, by the military. And I love that. I love scenes in heist movies where they have to plan it out. That is almost as good as the heist itself. And one of the things about heist movies is that they make this plan and generally something goes completely wrong. And in this specific case, the thing that goes wrong is that Bill Burr has uh, the, the truck across the tracks to block the train. 
And uh, this indigenous person comes along and is going to push the truck away. So they have to very quickly pull everything out of where it, was, where it needed to go. And it's a very dense plot involving methylamine, replacing it with water and stealing a, a small percentage of it. But they are still able to execute this train heist in great fashion. It appears that they have been totally successful. And then out of the corner of their eye, they see the kid from the beginning. He returns at the very end of the episode with his tarantula. He waves at the four char- our four main characters. And Todd almost instinctually pulls out a gun, shoots the kid in the face, as Jesse is totally horrified by what has happened. And we get a fast, immediate cut to credits. I love this episode. The final 30 minutes of this are tremendous. Yeah, and they definitely took a lot of care when talking to people in the train industry to discuss, uh, you know, what freights could possibly be holding this and the dark territory stuff. And w- one thing I love is the episode itself call is called Dead Freight, which is a great title in and of itself. But they talked about originally titling it Dark Territory, and I don't know if you know this, but that is the subtitle or like the subtitle of the of the movie Under Siege Two, a Steven Seagal movie. And they decided to make it more, you know, I guess in this day and age, ser- search engine optimization. They didn't want to name it Dark Territory because it, it's also a train movie that deals with that exact same plot point. So uh, they decided not to call it that and instead call it Dead Freight instead. But, yeah, the execution of it is really good. Bill Burr with his truck breaking down right in front of it is is a perfect scenario. And I like that they have the fake out with the other gentleman who comes to help them out. So you think maybe he's going to catch them in the act and then he just helps them and their time's getting cut more short than they thought. Really well executed, really well done. And just a lot of work made into making this make sense for probably an audience that didn't think too much about it. But even going back to the the, uh, like Mike making a comment about like I've seen heists that work and then heists where people left witnesses behind and then that perhaps about to to the end with the the killing of boy with and todd coming in as like this unassuming person who we met as part of saul's crew to help with uh with the houses that are, that are being fumigated now here he is in this new role and you're like well that's kind of interesting and then it makes it even more interesting when he kills the kid and that adds a lot of consternation and bad feelings towards him but then also some disagreements in the group that we get in the next episode but yeah, that was one of those cliffhangers where I was like, I got to press play for episode six now to see at least the fallout from this. Right. And the first 10 to 15 minutes of episode six, which is called buyout. I mean, they're really dealing with this as Todd explains and justifies his actions. And, you know, I'll say this. I, I would never put myself in such a situation where I needed to execute a train heist to get methylamine to be able to cook meth and sell this drug that kills people. I would never put myself in this situation. But I, I, I appreciated the fact that they dealt with this in a very logical and well-thought-out manner. Jesse cannot even look at Todd. And this goes back to his sensitivity towards kids. This is something that we've seen a number of times. And again, this is something that they continue to come back to. And it is very much appreciated. Jesse is the most emotional of the three. Mike and Walter pretty much know what the situation is. And they understand that there are three options that that 
can be executed, but that ultimately the best one is to let Todd live. And Walt is the one who uses the logic uh, to keep Todd around. But that's not before Mike threatens Todd nonetheless for what he did and bringing a gun to this train heist without without sanctioning. And on a side note, Jesse Plemons is somebody who has been in a number of movies and television shows. I think he is perhaps best known for his work on the second season of Fargo, one of my favorite seasons of television of the last few years. And he was also in the movie Game Night, where he plays the creepy neighbor. And Jesse Plemons is very, very good, and I really like him. So uh, it was great to see kind of a younger, thinner Jesse Plemons on this. And uh, you had a you had a very interesting observation about him, Kevin, that I think you should tell the people. Well, it's in it. I've come to learn that this is not uh, an observation that I made on my own, but I immediately thought like this kid looks like Matt Damon the second I saw him. And then I listened to the podcast and they talked about when I think that they really enjoyed seeing Jesse Plemons was in, I forget which Paul Thomas Anderson movie it is. The master, the master maybe yes, yeah. the master. Where, where he's the son of Philip Seymour Hoffman. And they go to talk about how they apparently learned at some point that Philip Seymour Hoffman was a big breaking bad fan. And there was actually, I forget if there was already a role written for him that was taken by somebody else, or they were going to write a role for him to be a part of it and offer it to him. And they didn't go too much into it except for Vince Gilligan to say, you know, just because somebody's a fan of your work doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be able or want to participate in it. And I think maybe for for Philip Seymour Hoffman, it was maybe a schedule thing more than anything else. But I digress. Jesse Plemons is his son in the movie The Master. And so I think, oh, gosh, that's really great casting. He does look like Philip Seymour Hoffman. So now in my head, I have this conflation of the love child of Matt Damon and Philip Seymour Hoffman producing Jesse Plemons. I think that is the the perfect comparison, and uh, we will continue to see Todd over the next couple of episodes, but a lot of the focus of this episode, again, is on Mike, and Mike is continuing to talk about having to get tails off of him on a pretty consistent basis, and due to this reason, he says he has to leave the business And this also leads to Jesse saying he's out as well. The emotional toll that is clearly being taken on Jesse is too much for him to handle. They try to convince Walt to take the $5 million. And it is at this point in this episode where we are kind of in the end game of the show, where Walt finally tells the story of Grey Matter. And I think that there's a reason they've waited this long, because I think it's been a lingering question. What happened with that situation? Why is Walt so bitter? And I think the connection is made that Walt has decided that he has a chance to make a lot of money for himself and has a lot of opportunity to become kind of a a king of industry, so to speak. And he is not going to let that opportunity pass him by again. He let it pass by one time with gray matter and chemistry. He is not going to let it come with this uh, with this meth empire. And I really, really appreciated the fact that they, they did t- talk about that finally, because it is something that I don't think was a huge deal. It's not something I think they ever had to get into because there have been a lot of implications over the years. But I think making that direct connection was pretty great. So, Kevin, if you want to talk about that and if you want to talk about Mike and the way that he gets Steven and his partner off of him, you can also talk about that as well. I, too, appreciate that the Grey Matter story came back. It had to. And it's essentially Walt explaining what I think we already took away is that this was this business opportunity he had that he was either bought out of or didn't want or ultimately was not a part of. 
And we saw in season one, the birthday party for his partner and how lavish he has his, his, the wonderful life he has compared to Walt as a high school chemistry teacher. And there, there just has to be some resentment there. Um, I think that's only natural and human for people to feel much like it is. I think very natural and human to feel like when I'm gone, what is my legacy going to be? And for some people being a good father is good enough. And I think for him, that's what a lot of this was, is he was going to pass away. And, he, and ultimate, the, the initial intention was to leave money behind so his family would be taken care of. That's what you do as a man. That's what you do as a father. But now I think he's thinking about what he left behind with Grey Matter. And now he has this chance to, to uh, become a kingpin of sorts. And he's not going to let that opportunity pass by him again, even if it is in this, this very dirty, illegal, shady business of, of making math. So I appreciated that wrinkle being thrown in too. And yeah, we do see uh, that Mike is starting to be followed by Hank and Mike uh, leaves a note in uh, underneath the trash can. They think he's doing a drug drop and they go and they pick it up and it just says, fuck you, which I very much loved. Uh, and apparently was blurred out on the broadcast. But for those of you watching on Netflix, like myself and Jerome, or if you have the DVDs, you got to see it in all of its handwritten glory. How many times have you wanted to leave me a note that says just that same thing as we've done our wrestling travels over the years? Well, and you know, and those travels, maybe not at that time, but I think in, in the in the digital age, maybe there's plenty of t- times where I'm just going to send you that image of that note. <laughs> Thanks, man. I really, really appreciate it. So I, I've talked about dark comedy, and I genuinely think the funniest scene in the history of the show is in this episode. It is a dinner scene that involves Jesse, Skylar, and Walt. And the thing about comedy, so it's really hard to talk about why something is funny because I think it's kind of a gut reaction. Like you either think something is funny or it's not. So trying to describe this is going to be very difficult. But I think the reason that this scene works is a lot of it is dialogue-free. A lot of it has to do with Skylar and the way that she's drinking wine, pouring wine, becoming increasingly agitated. It's Jesse trying to make friends with Skylar, trying to compliment her cooking, even though the, the food that was gotten was from the store. Jesse very clearly in an awkward situation, just trying to get through this dinner. And Walt being very frustrated and angry at his wife. And I, I love this scene. I was legitimately laughing just at the absurdity of it because it's pretty rare when we've seen Jesse and Skylar interact anyway, and we actually get another time in this season when they do. This scene does not really have any plot value, doesn't really have any even, it does have some character value. But it genuinely was just a light moment that I think this season desperately needed. I think this season needed a scene like this to maybe take some of the tension away and make people laugh. It was genuinely hilarious, like definitely designed to be a very funny scene. And it is the very first time that Jesse and Skylar have been in a scene since season one where he goes, she goes to his house and tells him, you know, stop selling pot to my husband. So to him, he's always been this fuck up drug kid who probably dragged her husband into the into the depths. But 
at their point, the their relationship, Walt and Skylar's, isn't even good anymore. And she and like one of her accessories of the season becomes that giant white wine glass. <laughs> it's it, it's prevalent in so many dinner scenes with the two of them. Just deal with what she can one day at a time, making sure her kids are being safe. And Jesse's he's invited to stay for dinner. And boy, does he not want to be there through the awkwardness. But he it, it's almost like I kind of have to be or maybe they'll think something worse is going on. And, and God, it's just so hilarious. And he tries his best to be a good house guest and be complimentary through the tension. And it's it's just so wonderful. The funniest scene of the show, one of the best of the show in general. I absolutely adore it. So it feels like there are a couple of episodes where Saul basically appears toward the end of the episode, and he does not play a major role in this first half, but he does get a couple moments to shine here as he argues that Mike is being harassed by the DEA and very succinctly makes his case. And again, I really appreciate the fact that despite how goofy Saul Goodman is, that he is generally able to serve his clients well, and this is another example of that. Saul makes it clear to Mike that this this temporary order of restraint is not going to last. And Walt takes advantage of this situation. There is supposed to be a methylamine deal that takes place uh, with Mike and Jesse wanting out of the business. The methylamine is in the same place that Mike and uh, Walt and Jesse have their pseudo hideout, I guess, for lack of a better term. Walt takes advantage of the departure of Mike to steal the methylamine, so Jesse and Mike cannot make the the deal. Is it how do you pronounce it? Is it Declan or Declan? I think it's Declan. Declan. So they cannot make the deal with Declan, and Walt says basically in his arrogant tone and manner that there's not going to be a deal. There's going to be a new deal, and with this, Kevin, what happens? Everybody wins. Everybody wins because I've made this deal, and since I've made it, it's clearly the best one, and this is the one we're going to go with. Every little thing, man, has to micromanage, has to have the the Walt seal of approval on it. That takes us to, to the end of this particular episode, and I think uh, this this was a lot of setup. What I think you get is this is this is kind of a transition episode as they are dealing with the ramifications of the end of episode five. And this naturally will take you into the deal that starts at the beginning of episode seven. So they're kind of transitioning you. And I think that's that's kind of what this episode serves. And I think, again, there's a lot of humor, even when Walt and Mike are interacting as Walt is tied up to the radiator. I think there's a lot of humor in those moments, too. And I think this is an episode that was very much needed as we go into the final two. How could episode seven and eight not be with just everything coming to this? We say goodbye to a favorite in episode seven while also starting off with a couple iconic moments. Episode seven, say my name. Walt renegotiates the deal and we get two iconic moments. First, he asks Declan to say his name. And then he says, you goddamn right. Those are two moments that are very gifable. I think I've even sent at least one of those gifts even before. I knew what the context was. But this, uh, this is where Walt really asserts himself. And this episode, more so than anything, I think, represents the idea of Walt breaking bad, both at the beginning of this where he makes the deal and with what happens to Mike at the end. Yep, and it's another example of Walt being able to to talk some people who are used to having others to be afraid of him to show that A, he's not afraid, B, that 
they need him more than he needs them and C to talk them into taking a deal that they originally think is absurd and bad. Credit to our credits due to Walt. You know, it, he may be uh, controlling and have have an ego, but at least he can get it done uh, when the time calls for it in terms of uh, business negotiations like this. So I think there is a scene in this episode that reminds me a lot of the television show The Wire. Uh, there is a scene where Hank is told to lay off Mike and to kind of end his personal investigating of these drug deals because, of course, he is supposed to be a manager and he is kind of overseeing all of these other matters and him focusing on is, is costing the money. And the reason that this reminded me of The Wire is that there are so many times on that show specifically where they would talk about fighting the drug war and – there would be these moments of bureaucracy or red tape or paperwork where they would just not be able to do what, what was right or what was needed in order to fully finish the deal. And I think they're, both of these shows are clearly making some commentary on the drug war in general that, yes, we want to have this quote-unquote drug war, but are we really willing to do the things that are necessary to end this drug war? Because in a lot of cases, you'll go, over, you'll go after low-level dealers, you'll go after maybe some middle management, but you're not really getting the people who are actually running these things. And they almost got lucky in the way that Gus died. But in this particular case, Mike is such an important figure within the drug deal, within the drug operation. And the fact that they can't go after him directly, I think they're they're clearly making a commentary by having that particular scene. What I thought of was actually Parks and Recreation, because there's a season where Leslie gets promoted to heads of head of the Parks Department and she feels a little heartbroken because there's a scene where she's told like all the lower level bureaucracy stuff that she loved doing that she enjoyed doing that got her to get to know people. Now, as she's running things, she doesn't get the chances to do those anymore. And it's definitely different from Hank, but it's like once you get this promotion or this this head of things, you've got a lot bigger things you need to be dealing with. And a lot of these stakeouts and search warrants and things like that, those are stuff that are left to the, the, the people beneath you. You don't do those things anymore. But the problem is, is as we talked about in our last episode, nobody is as emotionally invested in this case as Hank is. They didn't try – Gus's people tried to shoot and kill him, not any, anybody else. So while there are people who are willing to let this go, Gus is dead. We can cross it off the list. Hank has these things he wants to take care of, and now he's being told he can't. And there's a threat of his job and his, and his livelihood and his reputation that's at stake. And we're getting to the revelation here at the end, but it does seem like if Hank's going to be off of the trail, that's kind of the last thing that needs to drop before Walt's able to carry on with his business scot-free. And then some other things need to happen to make it not that way. And then we get into those things later in episode seven and episode eight. But it's a, it's an interesting little insight into the DEA and also a minor bit of a fake out with maybe Hank's going to be off of Walt's scent for a little bit. So with this being the penultimate season, penultimate episode, 
I know the the episode eight is not technically a season finale, but for all intents and purposes, that's what this is. So there is a ton of stuff that happens. Mike saying that he is out tells Walt to get the bugs out. So we get kind of a regurgitation of a previous scene where Walt gets even more emotional, Kevin, and and turns on the waterworks even faster. I, I have to say it comes off a little bit faker in this case, but Hank following the cues goes and gets coffee. Walt gets the Walt bugs out just as he put the bugs in. And I don't, I don't know if you have anything to say about that scene, but Walt is, uh, Walt is, I, I don't know. Hank, this man is having a breakdown and Hank just doesn't know what to do. <laughs> well, I love this. The first time he feels he it's a little bit like a, Oh, yikes. I, I, this is making me uncomfortable. Let me go take care of him. And then the second time it's like this fucking guy is more of his attitude. <laughs> like he's more annoyed by it than feeling bad for him this time. Uh, so Danny walks, but Waxberger gets busted. And I do love the scene where Saul calls out Danny Waxberger for being kind of a charlatan. I mean, it's such a, it's such a great scene because Saul Goodman, of course, is kind of, kind of a charlatan as well, but Saul is very clearly good at his job. And this lawyer is not. Oh, I also love the word he gets busted. As he's uh, leaving the money in each of the nine bank boxes, he turns his head and there's Steven and he just says hi. And Steve just smiles at him. Perfect. Perfect. Steven Gomez and his wonderful goatee. That is a that is a manly goatee that he is uh, sporting. Did, did you know that that Gomez is a stand up comedian in real life? I never would have guessed that. Me neither. But they, they made some great comment on, on the podcast talking about it where just in the nature of being a stand-up and and making retorts and stuff, it's like, man, it must be torture for you sometimes to just have to be quiet in scenes. And he's like, oh, yeah, it's awful. Um, so, But it makes me want to seek out his, some of his stand-up. I haven't done it yet, but uh, I'm very interested to see. So the, the kind of final moments of this episode are Mike, because they were not able to go after Mike, they go after the lawyer instead, but they are able to uh, kind of work their way around and Walt warns Mike about Danny getting busted and offers to bring him his bag. Uh, this is a huge scene as they confront each other kind of out in the middle of nowhere near some near a pond, near a river. Uh, it's a huge scene. They argue about Gus and Mike basically makes the argument that everything was going fine up until Gus was killed. And in a way he is correct but here we are with this scene, and Walt clearly has his motivations. I don't know if he went into this situation wanting to shoot Mike, but that is what happens in a relatively shocking moment. Mike goes into his bag, sees that his gun is gone. Walt is, in fact, the one that has it. Moments later, he shoots Mike in the stomach, and then he, Mike disappears. He goes uh, to sit by the water. Mike tells Walt that he wants to die in peace and the episode ends kind of like the Godfather part three with, uh, with Mike in this case, keeling over to end the episode. I, I love making my Godfather connections. It's very obvious that uh, there are some Godfather fans on the writing staff, if not Vince Gilligan himself. Absolutely. And this is a very tense ending. Well, well first I like that Mike has the bag because it goes to show that he's thinking a lot of steps ahead where he has, this car with this getaway bag stationed at the airport and a getaway plan if things go south. But unfortunately, they go south in a way he's not expecting that can't work out in his favor. He has to uh, unfortunately leave his, his granddaughter behind at the park uh, to get away. And that causes – there's so much tension from the time when Danny Waksberger calls him and then immediately 
Walt calls him to let him know they're on to him, all that creates this very tense situation with him getting away. And then, of course, the ending with with him and Walt and and is very tense as well with the shooting. And there's is even a little bit of a what I found to be a little bit of a comedic break. One, I do think Walt definitely feels remorse for shooting him. But two, when he's sitting with him by the riverside, and he's like, oh, wait, God, Lydia has the nine names. Oh, my God, I could have just gone to her. And that's when he says, shut the fuck up and let me die in peace. Even though it's, of course, very sad that Mike it was shot and killed. The way that they they had that tension breaker with with Walt at the end, I, I appreciate and found very funny. And I think definitely a very controversial choice to kill Mike here, because like I said, he was such a beloved character. And to do this, I, I do think there's there's benefit to it. And I think doing it in the penultimate episode makes people think like, well, what the hell are they going to do in the quote unquote season finale? And one fun takeaway from the podcast was that Vince Gilligan did an interview. And I guess for the safety of spoilers or people leaking footage or whatever, they didn't send the finale early to review websites, but see, but episode seven, they didn't. And so Vince Gilligan's talking to someone who had seen episode seven, but hadn't seen episode eight. And they made some comment like, you know, gosh, it seems like, you know, with Gus gone and and Mike's gone, like all you guys can really do now is, is to have Hank figure out who Walt is and, and all this. And he's like, yeah, you know, I guess, I guess maybe you're right. Like that could be a direction we take it knowing full well, what, what episode eight takes in place. But all of that to say that there's definitely, I think some people who were not happy that Mike got killed. What did you make of the decision? I mean, I absolutely knew that Mike was not going to make it out of this first half because as I've told you, my, my inclination has always been the end game is Hank and Walt. Even if I don't know, I know that that's where this is going. So ultimately, I think Mike had to go in order for the rest of this kind of season to go on, whatever the second half is. And I think it's kind of a necessary part of this. And the fact that Mike talks so much about retirement is also a sign that he is definitely going to die because uh, a very common trope of a lot of cop dramas is that whenever you have the police officer who's talking about retiring and is finally going to be able to go live on his boat or live on his beach house, spend time with his grandkids, you can almost guarantee that that person is going to die. If you see the blueprints for a retirement home on a police officer's desk, Kevin, you can go to the casino and bet that that character is going to die. There you go. So I'm not surprised. I mean, look, I like Jonathan Banks. Would it have been nice to have him around? Yes. But I totally understand from a storytelling perspective that he does have to go. And I think the other thing for me is that I'm coming this knowing full well that Mike is going to be a part of Better Call Saul. Even though Better Call Saul is a prequel show, I know that I'm going to get to see Mike a lot more. So I think that also mitigates any anger or frustration that I might feel about it, too. Yeah, okay, thank you. that definitely makes sense. I definitely didn't have a problem with it. I thought it was a bold choice. And I like that it ha- again, it happens in the penultimate episode. So you're like, holy cow, what am I what am I getting on the next week? And what did we get the next week, Jerome? We get Todd showing up for work and a fucking course he has a backpack. I saw you write that in the notes. What's the de- what's is that a trope or something I'm not aware of? It's not a trope, but it's like, of course, Todd. Todd, to me, comes off as kind of a kiss-ass, as kind of a people-pleaser. So, of course, he behaves like a child and brings a backpack to work. I think I think that's exactly the kind of person Walt wants to work with, though. 
Yes. So Todd is now Walt's assistant. Jesse is out of the business. And I love when Todd makes his pitch to be Walt's assistant that he does. He uses a lot of corporate speak, a lot of corporate language in order to convince Walt that he is the right person for the job. And that's just who Todd is. And a fucking course, a character named Todd would do this. Yeah. Todd is definitely one of those names that's been a pigeonholed as like a, 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 a doofus or a screw up or something along those lines. I also love that Todd replaces Jesse, Jesse, who was played by Aaron Paul. Aaron Paul would go on to play a Todd in Bojack Horseman. Exactly right. (laughs) And be be Bojack's kind of assistant. So it all, it all works out in the end. It it does. Uh, I don't know that he killed anybody in Bojack Horseman. I will not spoil that for anybody who's not (laughs) listened to Bojack Horseman. So we get a a very tense conversation between Lydia and Walt. Lydia knows who the nine people are who are still alive, but won't say for fear of death. They they discuss expanding the business into the Czech Republic, which is apparently a very popular place for for meth. Kevin, did the podcast say anything about whether this was accurate or not? I feel like there may have been some article or something they read about maybe the rise of it or something. I can't remember exactly. Quite truthfully, a lot of the – the podcast was more about the the revelation and stuff than it is about this particular conversation. Although I will say that is kind of the interesting thing now is that with the nine people who are being paid hush money in jail, now they're not getting their hush money anymore. So now they're trying to figure out what do we do? Walt wants the names and Lydia's talking business expansion. So she's putting the cart before the horse a little bit here. Certainly. And I think we get a couple of great montages as a result of this. Walt decides that these nine people need to go, and we get some very jaunty music as the nine are killed. Again, I don't know if this is directly a Godfather reference, because these these kinds of montages of death have been done in a number of other movies that are probably referencing the Godfather, but you definitely get the nine killed in jail. And that music is so just happy and go lucky, as even the last person is asphyxiated and burned alive. It's a, it's called Pick Yourself Up by Nat King Cole. People will hear it at the end of the podcast. Of course they will. We also get Stephen telling Hank about what has happened, and uh, that is that is not a great scene. We get a montage of drug dealing, Kevin. Montage of drug dealing, that's always fun. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I love about this montage is it's so well shot and so well edited because you get a lot of transitions. They're clearly showing a passage of time like we have not seen on the show because it feels like so much of this show takes place on consecutive days almost, or at least there's very little time between these moments. And in this time, it's very clear that months are passing by. Walt is making a lot of money. A lot of money is being laundered. And I just really love this montage and the way that it shows the passage of time, because one of my concerns about this season in general was how are they going to represent the fact that Walt was kind of a drug lord, at least for a little bit of time without having a full season. And I think they kind of shorthand it in this way that I appreciate it. And it's uh, it's pretty tremendous. Michelle McLaren is a really good director. She directs a couple of episodes in this part of the season. She will also do so in the next run of episodes, too. And uh, she's just really good at what she does. So I have to give credit to her as well as to the editing team behind this. All right. So I'm going to talk about both montages a little bit. First, Vince Gilligan said that the 
prison scene was inspired by the movie American Me with Edward James Olmos. I have not seen it, but I guess there's a scene where people have turned like toothbrushes into shivs and they talk about how because they're so short, you have to use multiple stab wounds and do all this to kill people. And he says it's a great movie, but very hard to watch. It's one that maybe you'll watch once, but it'll stick with you and you probably want to watch it again. Uh, But that was the impetus for a lot of the prison scene. And one of the directors was talking about the especially where the the last person who they set on fire, how in the room, the flame went higher than they expected. And it actually singed the camera. Now, the camera was covered in like a flame retardant, but like it literally did touch the camera, which made for some great shots. But they talked about how it was like an exhausting day emotionally from putting it all together. But also like you have this adrenaline from shooting all of it and just uh, hearing about that was very interesting. And yeah, it's a very haunting montage with the juxtaposition of the music, plus the cuts to Walt at home drinking coffee and looking at his watch. And then as soon as it's over, he gets the phone call saying it's been done. Uh, just him, all this chaos going on in prison and him just waiting for it to be done. And then, yes, the, the drug dealing montage with Jesse Plemons and uh, and Walt Done to the the song Crystal Blue Persuasion, which is the song I will always identify with Breaking Bad when I think of it. It just fits so perfectly into the product they're producing and everything. And you see the glimpses of Jesse Plemons like having a notepad that he's putting together. Todd, of course, uh, him putting together everything and working hard and, uh, and Walt's at least impressed with his initiative there. So, yeah, just two phenomenal montages. And what I love about this is they also mention that like the producers or whoever, they hate that when they see the word montage in the script just because of the cost it's going to be because it takes a lot of time. It's a lot of footage you need to to make for for these montages and these shows. But two of them in one episode is bold. But man, like two really striking moments of the show that that they, those are two that burn in my memory when I think back to Breaking Bad. And then we get a conversation involving Hank and Walt. As Hank tells Walt, the tagging trees is better than chasing monsters. It's one of the rare times that we see Hank be contemplative and reflective. And it kind of pays off those two previous scenes because we've seen Walt get very emotional in his office. And now we see Hank not getting emotional, but at least we do get to see the humanity. And the thing that this show has done so well, and I give them a lot of credit for this, is they have built up the Walt-Hank relationship really well. I think it started at a place where Hank was kind of a bully. He was kind of antagonistic towards his brother-in-law. But what they've done in the last couple seasons is they made them more equal. They've had Hank rely on Walt to drive him around, to put plant bugs on Gus's car, for instance. And Walt has, of course, gotten very emotional in Hank's office. So they've done such a tremendous job of investing you in the relationship, knowing full well that they are going to tear it apart at the end. But if they had not put this work in, the significance of Hank going after Walt as he is undoubtedly going to do in the second half of season five would have, would not nearly have as much resonance. Well, and let's not forget that it's Walt who is any time that Hank has a lead, he's the one who takes it away from him. And all this has led to like this, you know, once he hears that the nine people in jail, cause there's that Hank's going to go try to get somebody to squeal for a good price. And now all of them are dead. And now he has nobody to give him the information he wants to pursue this case forward. And he's like, I give up. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, this is all being every time I feel like I get closer, like something, the, the rug gets yanked out from under him. And I think it's genuinely taking this emotional toll. And that's what caused him to think back to simpler times and all this. And, uh, 
Of course, Walt's in the room with him, and he's like, ah, gee, I know, I'm sorry, bud. Can I get you a drink or something? Meanwhile, knowing that he's the cause of of, of Hank's consternation. So it, they're equals both in, in their relationship now, but in, again, behind the scenes with Walt being the one putting these obstacles in his way and taking away all these leads makes it even more copacetic. And yeah, just it's brilliant, brilliantly done. And it, they've they've built to this crescendo perfectly with them as equals as we head into the the second half of the season. But we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So I think they did a really good job of building the Hank Waltz relationship. And I can't help but compare it uh, to what they've done with Marie and Skylar. And I don't think that this show ever cracked the Marie character. I think there have been times when they've gone to the shoplifting angle. And it this season just made me fully aware of the fact that they really never were able to have a full characterization for Marie. You see a lot of purple. You see her taking care of the kids. But I wish that there had been more moments with Marie and Skylar together to give us a better sense of who Marie is more so than Skylar, because I, I like the scene that involves them in this episode where Marie refer, where Marie tells Skylar that they are enabling Walt and Skylar's behavior. And that is not language that they I think they have chosen unconsciously. I think that is a purposeful thing that they are trying to get across. Enabling is, of course, um, language is often used when you are talking about addiction. And this show has in many ways been about addiction in many cases, as they reference drugs and gambling and all that stuff. So I, I like that scene. And what I almost had wished that they had done a, a better job of addressing is like, why don't Marie and Hank have kids? And, and I don't think, unless I've, unless I've missed it in prior seasons, but I wish that there had been a scene where Marie, maybe she talks about like she loves taking care of the kids, but like this is not the life that she and Hank want, that they want to be with each other and they really love the work that they do. Just having something like that to really give us a better sense of Marie, of who Marie is. And that's something that I wish that we had gotten. And believe me, I am not suggesting that I am better than the Breaking Bad writers at anything in life, but I just wish that they had done something more with Marie over the course of these five seasons because Betsy Brandt has been listed in the main credits for the entire run. And it doesn't even feel like it feels like Mike, we know him better as a character, even though he's been in half the number of episodes as Marie. Yeah, I guess I had my feel of Marie. I'm totally okay with the amount of time she got in the show, to be honest with you. I don't know what, more I would have gotten from the show and the experience of the show with all of that information. It wouldn't have hurt anything, but I don't feel like I'm worse off not knowing any of that stuff. At least, at least something more to represent who her character. Like, I'm not saying that they had to do that specifically, but I, I just wish that they had beefed up her character a little bit more. And I, th- I think I've gone, you know, this episode is going to go almost two hours. And I think I've been very positive about almost every aspect. So I think that one critique, I think, is 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 very fair. Uh, let's talk about the scene at the storage unit as Skylar takes Walt to a storage unit that just shows how much money they have. And Walt finally decides he's out. Kevin, I'm so angry that Walt did not Scrooge McDuck the money. I'm I'm not going to say anything, but you're going to get, I think, a moment that'll make you happy next season. But I but I thought this scene was fantastic. I think Walt needed to see something. He needed something visual in his face to show the success he has had to convince him that whatever legacy or or success or whatever you were hoping to have, you've done it. Here it is. 
what more do you need? Like, how could you possibly need more than this? Uh, and, and again, I think Skylar does a great job explaining like, you know, at this point it's, she has to, you know, spray it for silverfish and make sure it's dry. At this point, it's just stacks of paper. There's just so much of it. She, she can't count it. She sure as hell can't launder all of it. So it's like, what are we even doing here? And I, and I like that. This is finally a moment where she was able to take control and, and thrust this upon Waltz and make him really think about what are we doing here? What else do you need? Uh, and, and the whole line about like, I want my kids back. I want my life back really resonates with him. And just as sort of a, an aside, she mentioned, she's like, you know, how much money is this? And she's like, I have no earthly idea. Vince Gilligan asked the prop people how much money it is. And they said, if they were to guess based on like, if it was split half, cause there's twenties and fifties in there, they estimated it would be about $80 million, maybe 85, 90. Now, if I'm sure if you went through the show and did your math, it's probably not possible for him to have made that much money in that period of time. But obviously this is a scene where you're, 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 you're sprucing up a little bit, the Hollywood aspect of it to show the size of, of, of the amount of what he has done. But either way, it seems to to work for him and he tells her that she's out and we flash forward and the kids are back home and they're in the backyard and they're enjoying life. And what I love is that you have these two conversations. You have one going on with Skylar and her sister and then one with Hank and Walt and they're just in the backyard and they're talking about nothing. Just normal life is resuming. Things seem to be okay. Walt Jr. is, is uh, pushing around his kid sister and just like, it's boring. It's boring, normal pedestrian life that they've kind of gotten back to. So it's also a nice patch of time to make you believe that, yeah, Walt's out and and things are possibly going to be hunky-dory. I have a reality show pitch for you, Kevin. Are you ready? Sure, I'm listening. So Anna Gunn takes different billionaires to storage units and shows them how much money they actually have. And she asks each billionaire, is it this enough? What do you think? <laughs> I think that would be a tremendous idea. Unfortunately, I think you would uh, get an even worse picture of some people in this country more than better. I don't know. Walt White is pretty bad. He did try to poison a child. That's true. Well, I don't know that he tried. I think he did poison a child. Exactly. So we get this very pedestrian, boring scene. And you know, you know something is coming. Hank goes to the bathroom and he takes what quite simply is the worst shit of his life as he realizes who the other WWE is as he picks up the Walt Whitman book and we flash back to a scene. You may know this, Kevin. They may have talked about this on the podcast. This feels like it may have been almost a network note to include that flashback back to that conversation that Hank and Walt have about WW because it's something that could very easily just been forgotten. But this is not this is a show that I think respects its audience enough to where I don't know if they would consciously put that flashback in there unless they were told to do so. But I'm glad that they did because it just made things more clear. And Hank has the most disappointed, angry, sad look on his face. There's so much going on in his face. And what a way to end the season. So it was not a network note. It is something they decided on. And I think it was something that an editor put in there. And it, it, this is the very first time they've ever done something like this in the show. So that's key to note. And Vince Gilligan loved it when he saw it there because he and I think he was like, I don't know if I think it's necessary, but the way but I think he loved the the way that it goes from Walter White saying you got me into the revelation from Hank. And as somebody who was watching this live as it aired, I had forgotten that scene. And so them showing that to me and giving me that reminder 
made me say fuck out loud as the episode end as I realized that we had to wait a year for it to finish because it was such a great cliffhanger for for the season, him realizing it. And I didn't mention this, but I like in one of the first couple episodes when Walt is unpacking and Skylar's like, oh, are you moving back in? He's going through his books and he looks at the book and then you don't see him put it, but that's, I guess he made the decision that I'm going to have this in the bathroom. So it's like, it's so subtle you missed it if you don't know what's coming. But I love that that's in there and it's a throwaway moment and then this is how he finds out the other WW masterful stuff. And there was apparently like uh, Vince Gilligan would show it to other people or I don't know if it's producers or other writers or whoever else to see. And they, and somebody said like, I love the episode, but one note I would take out the flashback and he argued for it. So even before it got to AMC in their editing note, he, someone had the idea to put it in there. He saw it, he loved it. And I think that you got me from Walt is the same, but the, the what when Hank's saying, you know, WW, who do you think that is? I think that's an alternate take of that scene. So it's actually new footage of an old scene where you get the same you got me from Walt. So that's a nice little thing for fans getting something a little new in a renewed scene. But yeah, so there was some some conversation about do we include it? Do we not? You know, this is something that we've never done before, but is it important? Does it make the scene better? Do we think people will remember that that scene from the previous season? All these discussions were definitely had, but I can tell you, no, it was not anything from AMC. Or at least if it was, they they hid that very well on the podcast. I am glad that they included it. I think the only other way that they could have gotten away with it is if they had showed it in a previously on. But then you're kind of spoiling the episode if you do that. So I don't think that there is any possible way that you can do it. Another way. I mean, I just think that it makes total sense to have the flashback. If you're going to break the rules, then you do it for a specific reason. And to me, this this is the time when you break the rules because you need to convey that information as clearly and succinctly as possible. And that scene really does it for people. And it makes for a better cliffhanger. And it makes it really clear about what's going on because I think if you end things on an esoteric note – as some series finales have done over the years, I think you're you're just creating consternation. I think in this case, having something that is clear, definitive, is good, and you're just making people anticipate season five, part two, all the more. And I think this episode did it. I am not surprised that this is how the season ended up, because I knew that in some way they were going to tease Hank and Walt. But what I think... What makes the scene so special is the way they did it and the way that they executed it throughout these first eight episodes. And I have a deep admiration for the producers, the writers, the editors, the directors, for them to craft the first half of this season in this way to where it felt like things were still happening, but there's still a lot more to come in the second half. Because there have been a lot of shows since then that have either done half seasons or they've done two season renewals and it's felt like the first half or the first season in the two season renewal has basically been a lot of not a whole lot of nothing. There are certain specific shows that I'm not going to reference where I feel like that has been the case. I think Mad Men is one that is that, that comes to mind, but I really appreciate the fact that they got a lot done still without giving away the end game and the end game is still coming. Yeah, most definitely. This is something, again, if you saw this, you were not, not coming back for the second half of, of season five. 
a year from now. Oh my God, the agony of having to wait a year after seeing this scene. I, I remember it well, and I'm glad I don't have to do that experience all over again. And we can just jump into it right away if we wanted to. I could have just pressed play on episode nine and, and continued on this journey, but with the way the podcast is, I, did, I didn't want to do that and conflate maybe a couple episodes in my head. But uh, I'm very excited to get started, and we'll we'll discuss season two, the season finale, and I guess technically series finale of Breaking Bad next month. Yes, we will indeed be doing that next month. But Kevin, I believe you had some questions. You had some things you wanted to address. Uh, we were going to have a general discussion of series finales, but our this this show is almost two hours as is. So we we will postpone that conversation perhaps until next month. But I know there's some things you wanted to ask me. Speci- yes, yeah, specifically, and I gave you a couple days heads up on this because I didn't think this would be fair to drop on you now and have you have to think. I wanted you to get some time after watching these eight episodes to think about what do you think the end game for Breaking Bad is going to be? What do you what are you anticipating the end of Breaking Bad, the television show is? And you can get as, as specific as you want or as general as you want. But I wanted you to at least have a couple days for this to soak in marinate in your head so you weren't just caught off guard and having to answer. Because I didn't think that would be very fair. So I'm good. Can I exclude Saul and Jesse from this conversation? Yes, of course. Because Saul has a prequel. And I kind of know some things about it. So I don't, I don't want to get too deep into it. I also don't want to talk about Jesse for obvious reasons. So I'm going to focus on all the other characters. I am a firm believer that Hank and Waltz are both going to be goners. I, I almost think that you have to do that. You have to do the death of Walter White. There is no other possible way for this show to end than other than with the death of Walter White. And I, almost, I don't want to say I'd be disappointed, but I've seen I, a show, I'm going to spoil Dexter, a show like Dexter tried to not do that, and it's one of the worst series finales of all time. So I cannot imagine them trying to get a. I can't imagine these producers and these writers trying to get away with that. So yeah, fa- famously, the, the season finale of Dexter was given an F by the AV Club. I'll always remember that. Yes, so I cannot imagine that they are going to go in that direction. Ted is also not going to meet the aunt of his children and try to hook up with them. That's another thing that I am predicting is not going to happen, Kevin. Okay. That's a How I Met Your Mother reference, and you totally missed it. Man, I really like that show, and that last season is some of the worst stuff I've ever seen. So, yeah, thanks for reminding me of it. I can never watch How I Met Your Mother any episode. I just can't do it. Me neither. I'm 100% the same way. If you've never read Alan Sepinwall's review of the How I Met Your Mother series finale, I would strongly recommend that you do that because it is it is fucking fantastic. So I don't think that this is the kind of show. I don't think this show is cruel enough to kill Skyler, Holly, and Walt Jr. I just don't think this is not the wire. I think that they, they certainly are not above killing children, but... I think that if they do it, there has to be a specific story purpose, and I cannot imagine them coming up with a story purpose for killing those three characters. So I think those three are ultimately going to make it, and they are going to survive. Um, That's kind of where I come down on those three. I think there's other ancillary characters. Todd is probably going to be a goner in some way as well. 
I could go either way on that. I'm not particularly attached to Todd, but I could definitely see a scenario where he gets killed because of something that Walt does. I could also see him just living and not doing anything. So uh, that's kind of where I'm at with the major characters. Anything else you want to specifically know? No, nothing specific, because I feel like if I went into any more specific questions, it might be potentially giving away stuff or might lead your thought process into one way or the other. But it's nice to know your thought process was alive or dead for most of the people. I mean, I think that's that that's kind of what matters at this point, because I think that's kind of the show that we're getting. I mean, if this was Mad Men, I wouldn't be talking about killing people, even though that show has killed people as well. But I definitely think that this is a show where the people who live and die, that really matters. And I think that that is kind of the situation that the show has put us in. I think that we are obviously going to get Walt. Walt is going to get dragged into the game, so to speak, one last time, maybe for one last job or something like that. But we're definitely going to get something like that because right now Walt is out and clearly he's going to have to be brought back in. I don't know how much Hank is going to have to do with that. There's clearly going to be a confrontation between Hank at Walt at some point. And I cannot imagine that not being in either the first three episodes because it happens at the end of this episode. They're not going to wait. So I have to imagine within the first couple episodes, we're going to get some sort of confrontation between Hank and Walt. I say nothing, but I listen intently. Anything else, Kevin, before we call it an episode, our longest episode to this point? Which I think we could have both predicted even with only eight episodes. Yes. Just a gr- just a great watch. Hard, hardest for me to choose, I think, my favorite episode of the season just because I think so many good ones. It, it's very clear to me like they knew what they were doing. They had the time to tell their story, write their episodes, figure out an endgame. Yeah, it's not like some shows where they get canceled or are surprised or by things like this. Like they, they definitely have an exit strategy and were seeing it unfold and they were just so – smart to put the revelation of, of Hank mentally putting it together before this ended so that it could everyone was chomping out the bit for them to come back in summer of 2013 and us to, to polish us off. And uh, I'm excited to get into these last eight episodes for sure. As am I, I will not have to wait a year to fulfill the prophecy, so to speak. I will be getting into these episodes very soon and we will be returning next month to talk about the, f- the second half of the fifth season of Breaking Bad. Uh, I think this is a good time to get into some ending plugs. Last week, the Superhero Pantheon ended its Volume 2 run, and you can go back and listen to that three-hour podcast. I've just been podcasting, Kevin. That's what I've been doing in quarantine, is just recording long podcasts. I'm usually the type of person who is like 50 minutes to an hour is my sweet spot, but talking about Endgame, talking about Breaking Bad's final season. Got to break the rules. Got to talk about it more. So that's what I've been doing. Next week, there will be no podcast from me. I'm taking the week off. But then in two weeks, Brian and I will be back. And we are going to be doing a summer of trilogies. In the month of June, we will be talking about Lord of the Rings. In the month of July, we will be talking about the Planet of the Apes modern trilogy. And in the month of August, we will be talking about Beverly Hills Cop, as we're going to finally talk about some comedy, uh, Brian and I. So that is what you have to look forward to on my end for this month. So again, I'm taking next week off and then returning with a trilogy discussion of Lord of the Rings. Kevin, what have you got lined up for the website? 
Well, as a listener for the website, I want to ask, are, is that going to be one episode, one podcast episode per trilogy or one past podcast episode per movie of each trilogy? We are going to be doing one podcast episode per movie. I would imagine the talking about 12 hours because we are talking about the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings. I think talking about 12 hours of movie in an hour, hour and a half would be very difficult. Yeah, that'd be a very bad idea. As for me, you really took care of a lot of the plugs at the top of the episode, but I will say that if you were somebody who had been following along with the Flooping the Pig Adventure Time podcast and you were following back in 2014 and 15 and you wanted to wait for the new episodes, well, wait no further because this week, episode 61 is the very first brand new, never before heard anywhere episode of Flooping the Pig with myself, Brad Rune, and Justin Houston talking the first part of the Stakes miniseries from season seven of Adventure Time. So go give that a listen over at the same place you listen to this podcast. All right. For Kevin Ford, my name is Jerome Cusan. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next month with an even longer podcast talking about the series finale of Breaking Bad. You know, in hindsight, I think they probably should have added some poop sound effects to that last scene. Nothing's impossible I have found For when my chin is on the ground I pick myself up, dust myself off And start all over again